For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Now, on today's episode, we have got on a special guest. He is a British investigative journalist. He is also the author of the upcoming book, which is called Scanned, Why Vaccine Passports and Digital IDs Will Mean the End of Privacy and Personal Freedom. And this is Nick Corbishley. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. No doubt. So I've just done a brief intro there, Nick. But for people who aren't familiar with you and your background, please tell them a little bit about who you are and what you do. Okay. Um, I'm a journalist from from the UK. I'm based in Barcelona. I've been writing about political, economic, and financial trends and developments, mainly in Europe and Latin America over the last 10, 10 or so years. And around about February last year, I started to take an interest in what was happening in Israel with the passage of the Green Pass. I was extremely concerned by what was happening. I also began to see what the European Union was thinking about doing with its Green Pass. And as a result, in April, I began publishing articles um, expressing my concerns about what this could mean for basic rights and our basic freedoms. And little by little, by little I began seeing that those fears were well-founded. And in July, um, I began having talks with a publisher in the United States about the possibility of writing a book to compile and summarize these concerns and why, why everybody on, I think, planet Earth, everybody, especially in the so-called Western liberal democracy should be extremely concerned about what these technologies represent um, to our lives, the dangers they pose, regardless of whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated. Okay. So what was it that immediately concerned you? So Israel was the first place, I believe, certainly in what's considered the, the Western world to implement this scheme. I have infinite, uh, infinite, infinite concerns about this. And I've been concerned about it since uh, prior to any pandemic situation, which is why it set off a lot of alarm bells for me. But um, what was it in particular that struck you about that? What was the, what was the sort of, what was the mindset? What was it that, that struck, struck you with that? I mean, I've been covering questions of um, related to digital identity uh, cashless society, um, biometric identifiers for about four or five years. So, I mean, mm-hmm. like for me, the um, the 
the developments in Israel more or less confirmed my worst fears that we were about to see the rollout of uh, a form of digital identity that was going to prove to be extremely exclusionary. And not just provide incredible surveillance possibilities for governments and technology firms, but also to create a kind of like a forced, a system of forced compliance, mm -hmm. uh, which is essentially what the vaccine passports are. They are a means of forcing people to um, obey and comply with whatever rules and regulations the government wants to impose. And we all have a price. Um, so, I mean, like in Israel, we started seeing that, you know, they were excluding people from bars. They were excluding, sorry, excluding people who were unvaccinated, people who didn't have the vaccine passports from bars, restaurants. And then it began to be, you know, you couldn't go to university, you couldn't go to class. Um, and that began to really concern me. It wasn't just about leisure. It began to be about your possibility of, um, going to, to university to study a course. And little by little, this got darker and darker. So we got to the point where in Italy, in October, they, they essentially said, if you do not have a vaccine passport, you cannot work. Mm -hmm. um, and again, this, this is, I mean, it's, the, it's the sheer scope of application here. It's about how you know, they are applying it to not just people who work as employees, it's self-employed, it's people who work remotely. It's like you are, um, you are banishing people from participating in society and participating within the economy for making a living. Mm -hmm. uh, this, this is something we've not seen, um, at least in our lifetime. Um, it could be argued whether we've seen it in the last few hundred years. This yeah. scope, just the sheer scope of uh, application, just how much it restricts the ability to live, the ability mm -hmm. to to form part of society and economy. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's far more concerning than any any yeah. virus out there, as far as I'm concerned, and has been from the very beginning. I think the governmental responses have been far more catastrophic and set a far worse precedent. Um, than anything else that's my that's been my opinion from the from the very beginning of this all have you been surprised by how um the the fact that this has happened is in these as you called them so-called western liberal democracies because mm -hmm. we've seen in places like china they've got this very bizarre social credit score system which i think a lot of westerners are not are not aware of or they think it's not a reality or something like that. Because um, that's one of the things that's really struck me and I found quite disheartening is that in how quickly all of the notions of classical liberalism and freedom and liberty and all of those things have been jettisoned under the mask of health and safety, but really based on scaring people you know, scaring people. And then once you scare people, they are willing to give up their rights, give up their freedoms, give up their some of the very basic things. I mean, over the past two years, you've had people literally, you know, not allowed to go outside, you know, forced to stay at home, forced to shut their business, forced to cover <clears throat> their faces in public, forced to do this, forced to do that. 
And there has been pushback, and I think the pushback is increasing with where we are now, thank God, after two, after two years. Um, but I was very shocked that it was even able to take any sort of firm root to begin with um, when I saw the response in somewhere like China. Like I said, I was like, okay, well, it's a very authoritarian country, very authoritarian government. That is, that's well known. It doesn't pride itself on being a you know, liberal and democratic, not really. Um, but countries like USA, Canada, UK, Australia, New Zealand, West, Western European nations, uh, I, I was quite gobsmacked by, um, you know, I, I know these things have happened in different forms in history before, but it's one mm -hmm. thing having that awareness of it and it's another thing witnessing it. So have, have you witnessed the same sort of shock and surprise? Um, I mean, I think that the, the first two or three months of the pandemic were absolutely, um, they just confounded us all. They, 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 they shook us up. They, they led us to a place where we couldn't really understand what the hell was going on. And this had never happened before. I mean, I remember when Italy began with the lockdowns as the first country in Europe or the first Western country to, to take this, this path. And I think that other countries were looking upon this and saying, you know, will they be able to do it? Will they, will they be able to get away with it? Will people be able to, will people accept it? Um, I mean, I think that the lockdowns are brutal and there are serious arguments about how effective they, they have been. Effective um, at crushing Certainly. <laughs> certainly, I mean, it's the, the first time in history that we have kind of like confined entire societies. So, I mean, like mm -hmm. when, when I, when we were in lockdown, one of the first things I did was I started reading La Peste by Camus, uh, which is um, a book about um, a city in northern Algeria, which, which goes through a plague in, I think it's in in the 20th century, I think. And, and you see how they essentially cut off that city from the rest of, of the country and the rest mm. of humanity. And you are allowed to go in if you need to. If you, if you, if you find yourself outside the cordons and you want to go in, you can go in at your personal risk. You can't go out. You can't leave the city. And this, I suppose, is what kind of happened in many uh, pandemics of yore. Um, but a global lockdown of the kind we saw in, in 2020 had never been done before, had never been tried before. And now we're beginning to see some reports saying that it wasn't very effective, that the, the effects were more damaging or that the, the benefits were... Were less, were, were less significant than the, the harms that it caused. It's called very it, difficult to tell. Call, call, yeah. Called it March Called it March 2020. Yeah. I mean, I think that yeah. my issue, more than the lockdowns, and I do think that, you know, if you look at countries where they've gone severe lockdown, like New Zealand and um, to a certain extent South Korea, so countries that try to control this, you can argue that they've had better results in countries that have just let it rip. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't buy that. I don't buy that. Um, yeah. But my issue is more the question of 
the vaccine passport, getting the vaccine mm. passport, so uh, an even bigger game changer. I, because... I agree with you. I, I sorry, sorry to cut you off. I I agree yeah. with you. I I think that they're I think that they're totally connected. Mask mandates, yeah. lockdowns, vaccine pa- like if if you say no to the first step, then the rest doesn't happen. Yeah, That's I mean, you, there's an argument to be made that by it's like a string of events, a string mm-hmm. of restrictions that ultimately leads to the vaccine passports. And I would argue that the vaccine passports are just one step away from kind of like digital ID, which is what mm-hmm. I think we are going to see in the next year or two. Um, and it's already, lots of places have already announced plans very quietly um, to, to, to roll out digital IDs. But, but for me, the question of the vaccine passports is essentially you are, you are splitting society in two um, on the basis of um, a health, um, public health policy that has been shown not to work at all. Um, so, I mean, like, even, I mean, like, now that you're finally getting public health experts beginning to say, look, this doesn't work. It doesn't achieve any public health goal mm. because take the example of Canada. You're going to stop people, um, truckers, from crossing the border. You're going to make you're going to force them to quarantine for two weeks because apparently they pose a greater public health risk than those who are vaccinated. When we know that those who are vaccinated are just trying to catch and to spread the virus. Mm-hmm. And you're going to do enormous damage to your economy on the basis of something that has zero, zero significance in terms of public health outcomes. So for me, the, the big issue there is, is um, the fact that we are dividing society in, in ways that already, I mean, society has already been massively divided by what has happened over the last two years. Mm-hmm. And societies were already massively divided before COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's one thing after another, but I think that what makes the vaccine passport so disturbing is that people are, we're going through a normalization of total control. Um, like I said, it's forced compliance. You know, mm-hmm. we are redesigning the social contract. Or should I say, we are not, we are not redesigning the social contract, but the, the social contract is being redesigned. Yes in ways that are of no benefit to the vast majority of the population. Mm -hmm. See, the thing is, I think even if there were a benefit, even if someone could prove a tangible benefit or they could show it to me, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, right? It, it, it doesn't matter. Like who decided that the, that, you know, people reducing COVID numbers, reducing the numbers of one, one virus of all the gazillion of things you could die from, who decided that that is worth sacrificing civil liberties and equality under the law and general decency and people's liberty and freedom, um, which people used to fight and die for by the millions, by the way, not so long, not so long ago. Um, who, you know, who's the authority? When was that conversation or referendum had? It was like, no, like this is just being forced upon people. I've made this point before, but something that's been fascinating to me through all these two years is that people have been running with this assumption that the most important thing in society is reducing COVID numbers. 
yeah. right? So even when you bring up places like, you know, New Zealand or Australia, which have been, ex- you know, had extremely, extremely harsh measures. Um, firstly, I would, I would question the efficacy of it because you can pick out most of the continent of Africa, for example, that did not have these measures, don't have these vaccination rates, and they have just as good, if not better numbers when it comes to this particular thing. But also, you know, even if, even if someone could show, oh, look, well, Australia had lower death rate than, um, you know, the UK or, or Sweden or something. It's like, well, at, at what, at what cost? I mean, do do you have, is Australia still a free country? No, it's not. Australia is not a free country. People can still try to go off those fumes of former glory and pretend that it is, but but it's not. Canada is not a free country. It's not. You can go to places that are considered, you know, Westerners would like to consider backwards developing third world mm-hmm. countries. Or when you day to day, you have infinite, infinitely more freedom than you do in many of these places. You're not being shut out of. Oh, I can't go to the gym. I can't go to the cinema. I can't go to a restaurant. Some places, you yeah. you can't buy you can't buy petrol. Um, yeah. That's not. That's not sounding like freedom to me. I mean, if you can't leave your country, formerly that was only North Korea. Like, I thought North Korea was the only country that you're not allowed that you're not allowed to leave. I'm talking to people. Mm-hmm. Say, I, I can't leave. I can't leave the country. I mean, and again, for anyone who even thinks that's like that's logical. I mean, it, it doesn't even it it doesn't even make any basic level of sense. Again, from even if you were talking from a scientific and a health perspective, why why would you stop someone leaving? Why would you stop someone leaving the country? That doesn't even, it doesn't even make sense, right? If, if Well, I mean, I think that the, the argument was and still is for some people, the idea that we can get to zero COVID, the idea that we can somehow, in my argument, I, mean, I, I personally don't believe that is. No, totally impossible. Actually possible. No, um, not even close. I mean, like in, in my book, I say that, you know, if, if, I think if you were in the midst of a kind of like a smallpox pandemic um, where I think somewhere in the region of 30 to 40 percent of people were dying, then you would be looking at a necessity to try to protect, to try to stop this thing from mm-hmm. ripping through um, the human population. I think that there's always a place for some sort of public health restrictions based on the, the gravity of the threat and based on, in the case of the vaccine passports, on the efficacy of the, of the treatments or of the vaccines. Um, these have to be weighed up. I think it's a really tough one mm. to say which country. I mean, I think in Africa, Africa is an interesting case. There are a lot of people with a lot of ideas about why Africa seems doing much better than most other places. Some people say that it's because it's not actually got much in the way of vaccines. Um, it's got lowest kind of like vaccine uh, vaccination rates on the planet. Um, another reason could be that it's got an extremely young population. Another reason is mm-hmm. that they're not kind of like counting the cases as studiously as countries like the UK um, or countries like Israel. So they're not testing as much. So, I mean, there are a whole host of reasons. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of reasons. Obesity. I think uh, that an obesity level, so absolutely. Vitamin D, vitamin I mean, D levels, um, you know, various medications that people take for as yeah. antiviral, antiparasitic drugs. There, There's a host of reasons. Um, but yeah. I think what's fascinating is that not a lot of people are 
are even looking at it and asking those questions. No, no, no. I mean, um, you could say, you yeah. could say the same about India. I mean, India is mm -hmm. another very interesting case in point. India, if you look at the numbers of uh, infections, you look at numbers of deaths. It's it's had a reasonably um, light experience compared to many countries in Europe. Mm -hmm. It is doing things that seem to work, mm -hmm. and those things seem to be including seem to include early treatment. Mm -hmm. And that is something that we don't do. Yeah. And I, I, I lived through this experience myself. I had COVID in July last year. Mm -hmm. uh, when I um, tested positive, my, my GP here in Barcelona said to me, go home. Let's see what happens. If you start mm -hmm. having trouble breathing, then just find an ambulance. That mm -hmm. was the full extent of the medical care I got at the primary level. Yeah. I told him I'm asthmatic. I know that that means I'm at slightly higher risk. Should I be taking anything? He said paracetamol. Mm -hmm. And I know that paracetamol is, I mean, it's like taking a butter knife to a, <laughs> to a gunfight with narco gangs in Mexico. It, it's insane. Mm -hmm. And I went through a pretty dark experience. I mean, I, I had eight days of fever, and every time I used a paracetamol, it reduced the fever slightly, very slightly. And I went to a hospital eventually mm. just to be put under observation because my oxygen levels went down to 93%. Mm. And I did tests. Um, and after three th those tests, they told me, look, everything's fine. You can go home. Yeah. The weird thing, the interesting thing is the doctor in the hospital said to me, if you could get rid of one of your symptoms just like that, which would it be? And I said, fever. I've had eight mm. days of fever. I would like to have no more fever. So he gave mm. me a, a much stronger painkiller. And within 12 hours, I had no more fever. Um, this is something that I speak to people from the UK. I speak to people from France. I speak to people from Italy. I speak to people from many different places. And they say exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. When you get COVID, when you test positive, they don't give you anything in the first seven or eight days. So no. when they're telling us we are protect, we have to protect the hospitals, how do you protect the hospitals? By not giving any treatment in the first seven to eight days. Yeah. And it's the same it's thing, bizarre. it's insane. The same thing happened to my brother-in-law in the UK, who's 38 years old. Um, he's got a chronic illness. That means he has to take an extremely strong medicine, which means he's high risk for COVID. Mm. He didn't get contacted once by his GP during the seven or eight days that he had COVID. Um, my sister phoned the health clinic to say, could you please speak to us? They didn't phone back. And this is happening everywhere. Yeah. yeah I it, don't it, understand. It, it's, it's absolutely mind-boggling. Yeah, it, I mean, it's, I, very, it's very weird because, you know, so many people have been running with this, uh, you know, Save, saving saving lives and protecting the hospitals and all this stuff narrative and it's like i mean not giving people early treatment is i mean there, there's a lot of elephants in the room but that's such an a, a huge i mean i mean it, it kind of blows my mind that you're thinking you know in the u.s this is the protocol really in the usa in the uk in, ac across europe and so on it's like well mm -hmm. stay home and if you get like you know, if you feel like you might die, then come into a hospital. Even, even if you come into hospital, we still probably won't give you any treatment. 
Um, yeah. If things get really, but really I mean, bad, you know, it, it, it's, it's, but so... it, it, it's, it's essentially like, if think, put it this way. I mean, I, I thought of it like this. It's, if COVID, I mean, COVID is supposedly the worst illness that we've had for however many decades or whatever. It's certainly the worst pandemic we've had. And we are constantly told how dangerous it is. Mm-hmm. But in the first seven or eight days, they give us nothing to protect our bodies from it. We're not told to take vitamin D. We're not told to take zinc. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like off-patent treatments like ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine have been more or less outlawed mm-hmm. in most Western liberal democracies. Um, and it's basically like putting uh, putting down, laying down the red carpet for the virus to go wherever it wants in your system, to get a real foothold in your body. And they're just leaving it to chance. And this is this go, the same goes for if you know if you're 75 years old, you've got two comorbidities. We'll start treating you when you come to hospital. But we're gonna let you fight it out on your own mm-hmm. with a little bit of paracetamol for the first seven to eight days. Now you can make you can make the case that this this is understandable in the first three or four months of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. What you can't do is say that this is understandable two years into a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's very strange. What do you think is going on there? I mean, <laughs> people have all sorts of ideas on this thing. I have mine. I don't know if I could even <laughs> voice mine if I want this interview to go to go on YouTube. But um, it, it, it's there's there are so many strange and bizarre things that people people seem to just be ignoring. Um, I mean, yeah. and you can you can take any one of them and one and and just focus on that one, and it's. It's a huge whole conversation. Um, this goes everywhere from the the origin of of this whole thing, and the, you know the gain of function research, which was very much glossed over in the media, despite being made very major news. Um, to the fact that okay, well, again, if if someone is there trying to convince me that this thing is is, is scary and dangerous and he's k- killing all these people, etc., it's like, well, why are they not offering early treatment? I mean, that's, that's not that you don't need to be a, a, a doctor or a medical expert to know that early treatment, regardless of the disease, actually, regardless of the disease, the earlier you treat it, the better it is. If, if there were some, I don't know if someone had someone contracted HIV or even developed into AIDS or something, you say, oh, just, 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 just wait, just wait. We're not going to give you anything. Just stay there until, until you feel like you're close to death and then we'll hospitalize you and give you some i mean that would be that would be psychotic yeah yeah if someone has cancer yeah or someone has cancer you you wouldn't say okay just let it leave it let it let it run it let it run its course a bit when it or when it gets really really bad we'll consider an intervention i mean no like from the the earlier you detect it and the earlier you do something then you you can nip it in a bud. You know, a, vi- a virus, rep- it replicates and, you know, the symptoms get worse the more you let it, you know, if you've got I mean, a very I mean, strong... Especially, especially if you know that there are things you can do that can happen. Yeah, yeah, because then, if then you at, know... that, at that point, I have to assume it, it it's it's callous. I have to. I mean, there's no... It's, it's hard not to feel that. Um, I mean, like my personal feeling is that the system is just 
um, has just gone. I mean, like the pharmaceutical companies mm-hmm. have such a strong grip on how the medical system works, mm-hmm. um, on how um, medicines are approved. So, I mean, what most people don't realize is that most medicine regulators, the regulators that um, determine whether or not a drug is safe and efficacious and therefore um, should be allowed onto the market are at least 50% funded by the same pharmaceutical companies that are producing the medicines they're regulating. Mm. In the UK, as far, as far as I'm aware, it's around about 80%. Now, that wasn't the case two or three generations ago. That certainly wasn't the case um, in the 1980s. It began to take place in, like, it began, this began to take place in the 1990s. Mm. It's very similar to what happened in the global financial crisis, where you had ratings agencies that were rating the debt of um, issuing companies. And those ratings agencies who are essentially telling investors whether, you know, just how safe, how secure a certain um, financial asset is, they were being paid by the same companies that were issuing the asset. So mm-hmm. it's a perfect example of conflict of interest. Um, so we have regulatory capture. It's been that way for, for a long, long time, but it keeps getting more and more accentuated. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, I mean, I think that is number one. They, many of the pharmaceuticals ha- are producing early treatment uh, medicines for COVID-19. We've already seen Merck has, um, has one that's just hit the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pfizer has one that's just hit the market. I mean, obviously, things like um, fluvoxamine, like ivermectin, like hydroxychloroquine, these medicines that have been around for decades have been shown to be pretty safe, especially in the case of ivermectin. And mm-hmm. um, these often very little in the way of profits, especially for these, these large pharmaceutical companies. It's a competition. They are, they represent a very, very serious competition to their own uh, newly developed products. It's so the, the scary, the scary thing is that the application, like the double standard. So, so on the one hand with ivermectin, they keep saying there's not enough evidence. There's not enough evidence. You know, even though they've done dozens and dozens of trials, they keep saying that none of those trials are large enough. They're not random, uh, con- random control trials. So, I mean, like, there's, and then like Pfizer will just do one trial with, with maybe a thousand people and say, this works like magic. Mm-hmm. It will be reported in the press as working like magic. And every med- medical regulator on the planet will be rushing to sign it off. Mm-hmm. And that is what we get. It's, it's money. Yeah. Effectively. It's, it's a shame. You know, it, it's, it's sad. It's sad. And the the redirection of the of of the outrage has been in, incredibly interesting to to watch right i mean i i feel like after the past 2 years pe- people you know people people should be angry people should be outraged people should be asking questions but they've they've played it so that people are now blaming each other right you know they did this whole demonization of the unvaccinated you know de- demonize your neighbor even your your friends your family anyone who is not 
following this exact protocol or who is even questioning it. Anyone who even asks a question about the vaccine, anyone who even mentions some of those uh, drugs you named. I mean, for example, I mean, I'm, I'm recording this interview with you right now. I probably can't put this on YouTube, not because we've said something horribly wrong, but because you've mentioned ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, you've, suge you've, you've suggested that those could even potentially, those could even potentially be mm -hmm. helpful. And YouTube has a clear policy saying that you're not, you're not allowed to do that. And that I apologize. Is, I apologize no, for no, saying it, that. It, I oh, no, it's <laughs> fine. No, it's it's fine because you know this podcast is called Real Talk with Zuby. I don't put every single episode on YouTube because if if they don't want to allow basic conversations, but to me that that is so incredibly dangerous, right? I mean, because again, I'm I'm not an I'm not an expert scientist. I'm I'm not a doctor who studied all this, but the the I've never before seen that you, you're not even allowed to you know you're not allowed to talk about these things openly you're not allowed to suggest potential treatments even when they're being used elsewhere we were talking before about india and africa okay mm -hmm. ivermectin is widely used in those in those regions could it yes. have had an impact right i can't say definitively i don't know but i mean i mean there's no way of absolutely knowing because they're yeah. not willing to do the actual trial <laughs> ex exactly you know whether or not this drug works yes. if it does work i mean like uh -huh. Japan, it, I saw Japan it, recently came out with something saying suggesting that it works as well. You've, yeah, I mean, I, I, they've, they've kept things quite close to their chest, I think, in Japan, because I think like um, health authorities that go there are petrified mm. of the repercussions of breaking with pro protocol. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, like my, my wife is from Mexico. We visited Mexico recently. Mexico is one of the countries that that kind of like at a national level began using ivermectin. Mm -hmm. um, and it only recently, like last two or three weeks, it abandoned that after a year. Um, a lot of people said it worked, and but the federal government was against it. Mm -hmm. And eventually it was kind of withdrawn. But, but we don't know, and this is the scary thing, there's no interest in the pharmaceutical company. So if you, if you mm -hmm. want to set up and run a large trial of a medicine it, it costs a lot of money mm -hmm. um but governments could pay it they yes. don't want to yes pharmaceutical companies could definitely pay it but it goes against their own competitive interests their own mm -hmm. financial interests so we're in a position where we've probably got lots of medicines that already exist that help to reduce the risk of covid mm -hmm. that are basically being demonized i mean the horrible thing about ivermectin is they've managed to make a medicine that was kind of like being considered as a possible miracle, but already considered a miracle drug before mm -hmm. COVID-19, but with possible applications, even, even um, with, against cancer, against HIV, against a whole host of possible illnesses that cause huge amounts of death and, um, and just, just general chaos in the world um and and yeah they've made people so i mean like every time you read the word i'll say it again ivermectin every time you read it in the mainstream press it's always prefaced by the um horse dewormer mm -hmm. that is how you do it now so most people just see this as a horse dewormer when in reality it's a medicine that's won the noble piece the noble prize for medicine 
um, for its uh, discoverers. Mm-hmm. It is um, a medicine that has massively improved the lives of untold millions of people in Africa. Mm-hmm. Yet it is a horse to worm. Yeah. It's, I mean, and it's so, and it's so dishonest as well. You know, this is this is w- one thing that's really happened over the past couple of years is trust in these institutions. You know, from the 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 corporate press and media to the scientific establishment, the medical establishment, the political establishment. You know, they they've and I. I don't like to group, I don't want to group everyone together because not, not every, you know, not, not every journalist is the same, not every scientist, not any doctor. And so many people have been silenced or pushed to the side or ignored and so on. Um, but the overall trust in, in these institutions, rightfully so, has just been been blown up. I mean, people were already skeptical for, for various reasons, um, but they've really killed their credibility. They've really killed it and con- and continue to. That's the that that's another part of the fallout of all this because in the future, you know, they they've undermined they've undermined the trust. So let's say let's say later in our lifetime, let's say twenty years from now, there is a there is a pandemic which is far you know a million times more deadly than than this one, or you know, ten thousand times higher IFR, say instead of a, you know, 0.1-ish percent uh, death rate, say we're talking about, uh, you know, 20%, 30%, something like that, then they've now created this situation where, you know, how how are they going to be able to communicate that after all the, the lies and the manipulation and the deception and the hiding of the ball and the attacking of anyone who questions the narrative? You know, I also have a, a fear that, man, like that could go horribly, horribly bad because people have been made so, so skeptical that I mean, and these days now, I, anything I see, like I don't know, I, I don't even know what I, what I can trust and who I can trust. And or is, is this number even is this number real? How is this being manipulated? They're giving this number or that or it's all you know, in one one week they say something, and then a couple weeks later they literally say the complete opposite. I mean, w- just just in the past year, if you think of how much the narrative has shifted, just in the past year. I mean, less than twelve months ago, or in the past month. Forget about the past in, year. Even, the past even in month. the past month, yeah. But I mean, <laughs> this time this time last year, it was. If you take the vaccine, you will not get COVID, and you will not mm. transmit it. People said that Rochelle Walensky, the director of the CDC in America, said that Joe Biden, the president of the United States of America, said that Dr. Fauci said that I believe Bill Gates even said that. I don't know why he's an authority, but he but he's and now it's well, you know, well, firstly, you have to keep getting you have to keep getting boosted. And also you you can still get covid. You can still spread it with this new variant. It's you know, in fact, you might even possibly might even be more likely to get it. Um, and it will reduce the risk of hospitalization and, and death, which is, you know, reducing the risk of hospitalization and death is not a is not a is not a bad thing, but it's a very big shift from you're not getting it and you're not transmitting it. Like that's that's a very big that's a very big gap, and that's happened so quickly. And again, anyone who this time last year had a question or was hesitant or was wondering about any of this stuff, they were just attacked. 
demonized, marginalized, pushed to the side, excluded from society in some cases. And then more information comes and it's like, oh, okay, we're we're learning new things. The science is changing. And it's like, well, so why were you so aggressive towards anybody who even merely suggested or you just wanted to know more, just wanted to have a questions, you know, a basic question. How long does it last for? That's a fair question, right? If I'm going to take a medication, uh, I want to know how, how long does it last? And they're like, well, you know, we don't know yet. Um, it, it, it's a fair question. You know, do I need to take it once? Do mm -hmm. I need to take it twice? Do I need to take it once a year, twice a year, three times a year, every day? I mean, these are these are very fair and valid questions are, is it necessary for, for children? Is it safe for children? You know, what are the potential side effects? What are the probabilities? All of these are very fair questions. And with any other medical intervention, whether it's a surgery or it's um, a, a, a treatment or it's, or it's a pill, anything you'll, you know, we were, it's, it's open to discuss these things, right? you you can totally yeah, yeah. discuss these things. No one's going to attack you or demonize you for talking about the uh, potential side effects of, ibuprofen or you know if you're getting laser eye surgery they'll talk, talk talk you through look these are these these are the potential potential upside these are the potential risks you know you might get you might have some dry eye symptoms your vision might not be corrected 100 percent, but you know there's a 95 percent chance we'll get you to 2020 it's, it's all clear it's very laid out you go in for a surgery you understand that there there are risks right this is the upside but there's the risk and also above all as we were saying before no one is forcing you Right. No one is forcing mm -hmm. you to do it. Right. If someone was trying to force you to have laser eye surgery, I would be totally, totally against that. I could be very pro laser eye surgery and say, yeah, you know, it's a it's a good thing. Mm -hmm. I've had it done. You know, it's a, helps you see better, whatever. Um, but if they were trying to force <laughs> force it upon people, um, that would be an entirely an entirely different well, story, no matter how they tried to justify it. It's an important point you're making because essentially what we're looking at is the difference between a vaccine or a so-called vaccine and a medical treatment mm. so i mean like the idea of a vaccine is that it has a collective benefit it allows a society or people to either eradicate or to eliminate the virus and therefore begin to live without that virus or or at least eliminate it to the point where we can deal with it and these vaccines don't offer that Potential anymore. This is absolutely clear. I mean, when I started writing this book back in, I would say, September, that was still quite controversial. When you told people, look, this vaccine isn't doing its job, there was still a lot of people who were saying, no, you, you, you know, you, you, you're not, you, you, you're speaking, you're spreading disinformation or you're spreading mm -hmm. misinformation. It's dangerous. You are whatever. You're a threat. Mm -hmm. But I mean, like by now, thanks to the Omicron wave, we're in a position where, as you said, we it's clear that somebody who is vaccinated is as much at risk of spreading this and catching it than somebody who is unvaccinated. And there are there is data from certain places, including Denmark and the UK, which suggests that you're actually more likely to catch it if you are vaccinated than unvaccinated. So mm -hmm. clearly this can no longer be described as a vaccine. Um, and this, and there, there was uh, an incredible exchange on French television two or three weeks ago, where one of the chief scientific advisors to the Macron government, who had been like, you know, promoting these vaccines for the last year and two or three months, 
suddenly said, well, these vaccines are a little bit weird. He used the word peculiar. Mm-hmm. He says they don't really function like vaccines. They're more like medicines. Mm-hmm. They reduce your risk of developing severe symptoms. Sym- symptom now, the, question is, the question is, is, are we going to mandate? Are we going to change the way our society works in order to more or less force or at least to coerce people into taking medicines mm-hmm. because if we do that if we go down that path then basically we can start forcing people to take chemotherapy if they get cancer mm-hmm. that's something we don't do if you get cancer it's up to you how you want to treat your cancer well you yeah I, I would i would it. go as far i would go as far as saying you you could if you set that precedent you could force people to get chemotherapy whether or not whether or not they have cancer <laughs> right? i mean, I mean like, it's, it's, it's a terrifying i mean like it, one point I make in the book, which I think a lot of people will ignore, the wonderful thing about the vaccine mandates and the vaccine passports is they create a recurring business line mm-hmm. for pharmaceutical companies. Yes. It's not just a one-off. I mean, like Pfizer had its best year ever, I think, last year. It, mm-hmm. it earned and it generated $81 billion in revenues. And that was more or less double what it earned in 2020. And this is a company that spent like the previous 10 years, like seeing revenues go down. So you imagine like, and the case of Moderna, I mean, Moderna is insane just how much money it has generated. In the third quarter of 2021, it reported revenues of $5 billion. The, the same quarter of 2020, it was 157 million. Mm. So it was able to increase its revenues by more than 40 fold. That is staggering. Yes. So, I mean, like, if these companies have a business model where they essentially create a medicine, they're just waiting for bodies to be put into, mm-hmm. and governments are essentially able to create mandates and create the fear and the scare, or, you know, the, this, as we've lived through to a certain extent over the last two years, then you have the perfect business model. And we, the people, if we want to continue existing as supposedly legal citizens, we have to take it. Mm-hmm. And this changes everything. But, and hopefully, I'm hoping that people are beginning to see this. I get the impression, at least in, in Spain, having spoken to people who were vaccinated, who've had, had both shots, and who recently had Omicron, um, realizing that shit, the vaccines don't actually stop me from getting this. Mm-hmm. And now they're expecting me to get a third shot. Mm-hmm. And I think that you're beginning to see a little bit more questioning. I think in France, last 24 hours, 5 million people became unvaccinated and therefore oh. kind of like um, not able to access mm-hmm. almost anything. Is that, because um, they didn't, is that because they didn't take the third? That's because the government kind of up until then, I think it was like seven months you're allowed between the second and the third, and the mm-hmm. government suddenly changed it from seven months to four months. So if you've not had the booster in the last four months, you are wow. considered unvaccinated. Um, I mean, Italy, this, this, this is also how it ends, though. That's how it ends, because those numbers keep tilting. Those numbers I mean, keep this, tilting. This gives me a certain amount of hope. Yes. Um, I do think that in most countries... You've got fewer people taking the booster shots. Mm. So the amount the number of people who are considered kind of like fully vaccinated is going 
down in the number of people who are considered unvaccinated is going mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, and like for me, one of the most, one of the scariest things that I've seen so far happened yesterday when Mario Draghi, the prime minister of Italy, who's never been voted into public office once in his life, who is a former Goldman Sachs banker, who is the former um, chairman of the European Central Bank, said in a press conference that the unvaccinated do not form part of society. Yes, I saw that. I mean, well, that, I, yeah, I saw that. I mean, it's it's staggering mm-hmm. to see the prime minister of a country saying we are going to just we we basically just banish this. 10% of the population, which is six, seven million people mm-hmm. from society. I mean, like, left-wing people are shocked and horrified whenever you mention Margaret Thatcher's um, society doesn't exist quote. Mm. How many kind of, like, progressive left-wing people are shocked and staggered by the idea of removing 10, 10% of the population from society? Yeah. Like Mario Draghi just suggested yesterday, mm. and and the the one thing I keep hearing that is it's it's such a terrible argument, but the amount of times I've heard this thing repeated, which is that oh well, people have choices, but choices have consequences, so that's just the consequence of choice. I'm like, that's really honestly, I I don't like to use the word, but that that's really rapey, right? That's like Harvey mm-hmm. Weinstein, right? Harvey Weinstein, right? That's like saying okay, well. You have the choice, but if you don't make the choice I want you to, you will suffer the consequences, right? Yeah, I mean, that's that's, that's, that's forced compliance. Exactly, that that's and that's complete coercion. That's not, yeah. not a choice, and it, it's it scares me how many well freaks me out more. Like how many people I've seen make that argument of like, oh well, yeah. it's just the it's the consequences. It's like well, prior to twenty twenty, freedom and liberty was a was a default. I didn't need to do something. To have my basic human rights and 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 freedoms, let alone mm-hmm. you know inject anything, it was just like, hey, like you exist, you exist, you are you are a a British citizen, you are an American citizen, whatever. You have basic rights and liberties and and equal treatment under the law by yeah. default. It wasn't that. And and with the vaccine passport system, mm. essentially, if you want to go to the supermarket or if you want to go to I know, like, for example, in Italy, if you are unvaccinated, you want to buy your children some clothes because it's winter and it's, it's cold outside. Mm-hmm. You're not allowed inside the clothes shop um, because it's not considered essential enough. Mm-hmm. These things, what scares me most is this, the, the fact that people are normalizing this. Yes, I agree. The fact that people are kind of like psychologically saying, okay, well, it's, it's all right. I mean, like, you know, I'm on the right side of this divide right now. Um, I just wrote an article in the blog I write for in the United States called Native Capitalism um, about how many, many people in the UK are suddenly finding that their vaccine passport's not working, mm-hmm. that there's been a, a, a bit of a glitch in it. There's been a human error. There's a problem with the system. And suddenly when they want to go on holiday, they're fully mm-hmm. boosted. They want to go on holiday. They suddenly find, geez, I can't go. I'm, I've only what, one of my vaccinations hasn't been registered. Oh wow! And, okay. And then you enter this kind of spiral, this Kafka-esque spiral. Everybody needs to read Orwell, Huxley, and Kafka <laughs> right yes. now. 
we need to reacquaint ourselves with the idea of how um, abusive power, arbitrary power can even trap you, the innocent person, the compliant person in a hellish place. And in, in Spain, we've got a similar situation where I think something like 3 million people who are vaccinated, who've just had an infection, a COVID-19 infection, um, have suddenly realized that they were given the wrong test when they had the infection. And as a result, they are not recognized by the European Union as having had the test, as, in, as having had the infection. Oh. I mean, this happened to me in, in June, July, when I, in July, when I had COVID-19, I was given an antigen test. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it was quicker and cheaper. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is the European Union doesn't recognize that as proof of having had an oh, infection. Oh, okay. They only so accept the PCR. They only accept the PCR. Test. Oh, my gosh. My wife, my wife had a PCR test because she tested negative the first time around. So she, she got a PCR test the second time around. Mm-hmm. So even though she had milder symptoms than me, she was recognized mm-hmm. as having had COVID-19, whereas I wasn't. This has happened to roughly 3 million people, if not more than 3 million people, in the last Omicron wave. Mm. Most of those people are vaccinated. They had had two vaccines. Then they they got infected. And the government, at first, the government was saying to them, look, um, get the vaccine a month after you're feeling better from the infection. And a bunch of immunologists came out and said, this is not a good idea. Yeah. This is insane because mm. they've now got a lot better protection against COVID-19. And actually, we don't really know what's going to happen. If you, if you, if you get um, the vaccine a month after being infected, that you might actually be doing more damage to your mm-hmm. immune system. The mm-hmm. government changed policy. It said, okay, you've got five months. Don't take the vaccine during five months. So suddenly you've got millions of people who are in limbo. Yes. They've done everything by the book. They've complied mm-hmm. with the government regulations and they are in limbo. And this is, a, this is one of the things that terrifies me about the world we're moving into is all it takes is a human error or an algorithmic error or bias for you, the law-abiding citizen, to suddenly find yourself outside the law. I think that's good. That's why I think is why everybody <laughs> should be... Yeah, I mean, I, uh, no, I, I, I think, I think, it, I think it's good because people need to people need to learn and realize. Like people need you know, to realize, people need to realize that yeah. this, this has extremely dark consequences. Give it's gonna, it's gonna huge hurt amounts. Yeah, exactly. It gives huge everybody. amounts of people arbitrary power, and the same goes for that. Like, if you've got governments that are willing to encourage um, feelings of resentment and blame and hatred mm-hmm. towards one group of people. And at the moment, it's the so-called unvaccinated. That same government at any moment in the future will be more than happy to, to, re, um, to divert that hatred somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. History has taught us this multiple times. Be very wary of any government who encourages hatred of a minority perfectly said nick so what where do you think this goes from here what do you foresee as as happening do you think that uh the the passport and digital identity stuff is 
somewhat inevitable? Do you think that it was a threat which is now fading away for the most part? Uh, do you think it totally depends on the people and what they're willing to tolerate and not? How do you see it going? I think your last point is the most important one. Mm-hmm. Um, it depends on the people. I agree. Absolutely. Um, I think that we are being told now there's there's a new narrative that is formed over the last month or so that restrictions are no longer necessary. We're moving back into a normality where we're giving you back your privileges. Mm. Even the unvaccinated can start going to bars again, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that, I think that is should be celebrated, but we should be exceptionally wary. Agreed. Because they did not roll this out. Um, for nothing mm-hmm. and the vaccine passports are still going to be used for international travel so if you want to cross your border if you want to go from the UK to the most European countries you need to be you need to have the vaccine passport which means I think that means you need to be boosted um, if you are European you want to go to the US same applies um, if you're American you want to come to Europe same applies so the vaccine passport, the idea that they are removing vaccine passports um, is is bunk, is rubbish. Um, and but for most of those, doing, you can, most of those you can you can test outside it. Although I know some they have the testing and then they they've taken it away and they keep kind of yeah. I mean, it's and, you know if so. I mean, like if, if if you are one of these poor three million people in Spain who's kind of like no longer a totally legal citizen because you were given the wrong test. What that means is you can go to France. You can, you can, you can do a test. The irony is you can do an antigen test. Mm-hmm. Um, and that qualifies for you, you for traveling to France. Mm-hmm. So the antigen test doesn't qualify for, for showing that you've had an infection, but it does qualify. It does work for showing that you don't have an infection. Mm-hmm. It's a bizarre little world we live in. The science, um, the science. The science. <laughs> the science. Yeah. Um, but I think that if you look at what's happening in Canada right now, you've got, I think it's five territories in Canada that are saying that they are going to drop vaccine passports. Mm-hmm. And it's being celebrated. This is like a, you know, a, a partial victory for the uh, protesters, et cetera, et cetera. But you have to be aware because you, if you look at what's, what they're doing rather than what they're saying, um, the territory, the government of Ontario and I think Alberta are already um, launching programs for digital identity. And within those programs with digital identity will be your vaccination status. So it's like, and everywhere you look, the UK is about to pilot a pilot digital identity program, which is going to be used to, to allow um, or to enable employers to um, to check, confirm the identity of their workers or of their new hires. Um, EU is developing a digital identity wallet. So, so this is, I think the scary thing about what's happening is not just that we've normalized this idea of division and like having this two-tier society, it's that for a lot of people, this idea of constantly showing your identity to access the most basic of things has become normalized. If I want to go to the bar, I don't mind showing, you know, using my mobile phone to show that I am. And this, this is kind of like we are, we've conditioned 
um, pe most people to accepting this kind of checkpoint society. And mm. um, that is that is what worries me. I think the the fact that you are seeing digital identity being at least piloted, if not rolled out, mm. um, across the uh, Western Hemisphere, at least, yes. should, I mean, like, it tells me that we should be very, very cautious about believing what we're being told. Yeah, uh, I, I think a lot, of, a lot of bad precedents have been set, and people, mm -hmm. need to be very, people need to be very wary and vigilant about those precedents. Um, yes. Yeah, sorry, you were about to say something, carry on. It's also, I mean, one, one of the things I show, I, I, I lay out in my book is that digital identity is a fundamental goal of the United Nations, of many very powerful organizations like the World Economic Forum, of um, an organization called ID2020 Alliance. Um, the ID2020 Alliance, which is an organization that is part financed by, um, I think it's Rockefeller Foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and Cisco, um, so the International Chamber of Commerce. This very little known organization was set up with one mission, which is to ensure that by the year 2030, in eight years' time, everybody on planet Earth has a digital ID. Yikes. So, and they saw, so I mean, like by 2018, they saw a wonderful, they saw inoculation of vaccination campaigns as a, a very useful gateway. Mm -hmm. to achieving this end. So I think that if, if the vaccine passports have served any purpose for them, it's, it's to normalize this idea of using your mobile phone or in some weird people in Sweden using your hand or whatever to grant access, to get access to, to the most basic of places, to your workplace, et cetera, et cetera. That has become an accepted practice. It's time I think people began to question where this could lead. Agreed. Nick, where's the best place for people to find you and follow your work? Okay. Um, my blog is nickcorbishley.com. Um, and I'm writing twice a week for a brilliant financial politics and economics blog called nakedcapitalism.com. Awesome. Nick. Thank you so much for coming on the show, man. It's been a really enlightening conversation. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Okay. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Two for the fam, not for the grand, stuntly and destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, click and I bang, y'all gonna remember the name. Y'all gonna remember the name. These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early 
so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.